Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back, everyone. Ben, it's good to be back with you to talk about Genesis 5 and Moses 6 this week. After we talked about the creation accounts two weeks ago as temple texts, and last week, Adam and Eve in the fall as temple texts, we realized that there's something we kind of left out because we went from Adam and Eve at the top of the cosmic mountain and the garden temple and the fall to earth. And we even talked about the serpent. And I actually have a quote I'd love to share from, from Rumi. Where there is treasure, snakes come round. Where there are roses, thorns abound. In the grand bazaar of life, joy without sorrow cannot be found. And so there's that, right, from the fall. Hmm. Yeah, that's a theme in the garden, right? With Adam and Eve, sir. Yeah, it is. But we didn't really talk about the trees, right? So I wanted to talk a little bit about the trees before we go into this week's reading. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, the cherubim and the flaming sword, and a different way of talking about the fall. Because we, we had this way of talking about it last week. That's one way to talk about it. And this week, I'd like to talk about it as a fall into duality, from unity into duality. So let's start there. Yeah, I mean, we we mentioned how the basically the the creation of Adam and Eve was this presentation of duality, right? We have the male separated from the female, whereas you know originally it's just what we would call the primordial Adam, who isn't necessarily male or female. It's just Adam, and then it's separated into Adam and Eve. Um, and so that's sort of that that first glimpse of the duality. And then they're presented with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And it's not immediately obvious, you know, to us necessarily how there's a duality here, but God talks about how, you know, you have the tree of life, which obviously is a tree that if you eat of, you live forever. That's kind of the idea there. And then the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's not immediately obvious why that's associated with death, even though God says it is. Why is it that the tree of knowledge is associated with death as opposed to the tree of life? And I know there's lots of different commentary on that, but in any case, we have the tree of life as being that which maintains the status quo of the garden, the paradise, the heaven, right? And then the tree of knowledge being that gateway into the mortal world, so to speak, right? Into the world of death, And so they're presented with those two choices. And that's kind of where that duality sort of gets its spark off the bat. Yeah, I was reading in a a Sufi text this morning by Al-Ghazali. It's the Arabic recension of the alchemy of happiness. And it is mentioned at the beginning of the text that the purpose of the text is for this recipe, this alchemical recipe, is for the alchemist to return from earth to God. Well, okay, I should say from the world to God. It says from the world to God, not from earth. So 
the, it could also be translated to be resurrected hmm. from earth or from, from the world. Sorry, it's not really the earth at all. It's from the world. The world here, the word that's being translated world, it means the world is in as in First John, where you you shouldn't love the world, Babylon, right? As opposed yeah, to Zion, exactly. And so, in the way that that text spoke to me, and the way that the the Gospel of John speaks to me in the same way, in which we don't actually have to die to be resurrected, the death already took place when we ate from the fruit of of the tree of duality, right? When you when you leave the presence of God and the unity of all existence, where Adam and Eve are one human, which is a whole. And again, when, when Adam, when Eve is taken from Adam's side, his whole side, right, as we talked about it last week, they become two, whereas they were one. And it, right away, the text tells us they have to come back together again. And this is the mystery of conjunction, the sacred marriage, mm -hmm. the hieragami, right? So as we go into the world, as we leave the garden and go into the world, as, as we've talked about it, not the earth, but the world, we leave behind the unity. And the tree of life is then guarded by cherubim and a flaming sword, which is very similar to what you see in a Buddhist temple, where when you come to the threshold, there are these two threshold guardians. There are these dragons, and one has the mouth open, and one has the mouth closed. And the one with the mouth open represents ah, and the one with the mouth closed, mm which taken together give you the sacred syllable Aum. Yeah. Which Ah means the beginning, M means the end. This is just like saying the Alpha and the Omega. Right. And so it looks like to go into the temple, to, which is, again, the, the garden is a temple, right? You have to pass through these threshold guardians, and it looks like you have to leave your duality. You have to check your duality at the door, so to speak. So you're meant to go in, and eat from the fruit of the tree. And by the way, in the Buddhist temple, you find the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. Trees are associated with prophecy, whether it's Deborah in the Bible, whether it's Joseph Smith in the first vision, whether it's the Buddha in the Bodhi tree, Adam and Eve. Lehi. Lehi. Yeah, so many examples we can give from, uh, from all of the traditions. Uh, Mary in the Islamic tradition uh, on her way to give birth to Jesus, where she, has, where she actually gives birth to Jesus on the road to where she meant to be, and she interacts with a date palm. So many examples, and of course in pagan traditions. So it looks like you have to check your duality at the door, at the threshold, and you can actually enter into the garden. We're meant to go back into the garden. We're meant to return to the presence of God, to live a resurrected life. We fall from that life with God, that life of unity with one another and with God, into this life of duality, which is a a form of death, and with a spiritual rebirth, we become resurrected, and we can enter again into the garden. We can partake of the fruit of the tree of life, which is the love of God. And in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they saw the parallel between Jesus on the cross, which we sometimes call the tree, and Jesus was what they saw on that tree in the garden. Yeah, he's the fruit. Right, which is that fruit, exactly. Yeah. Which is basically the same vision that Lehi and Nephi have, and, and Nephi gets that metaphorical understanding that the fruit is that love of God. You know, it's interesting that that is, like, that's the way back into the garden as well, right, is, is approaching that tree. And 
you know, you talked about how the realization or the acceptance of duality is kind of that departing out of the garden, whereas you have the cherubim, which are, are guarding the tree. Oh, this is one thing we didn't bring up, Christopher, is that in <laughs> and this is just something to laugh at a bit. In the in the KJV, the King James Version translation, it says cherubims. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And the reason that's funny is because cherubim is already a plural word. And so to throw an S on it is is redundant and, and unnecessary. I, I wonder if this is why Shiloh always got it wrong. Yeah. I was always telling <laughs> Shiloh because he would say they, right? Uh, or, yeah. No, he would say cherubims, cherubims right? Yeah. Something. Well, that's what it says yeah, exactly. in the King, KJV. But um, yeah, cherubim I'll is already plural. And so um, I it's just a, a, a mistake, I guess. Um, or maybe maybe it was deliberate so that you know, English readers would be like, oh, this is a plural word, you know, that, you know, so I can see some deliberateness to it anyway. But that, again, that's just a a funny side note. So the cherubim is there with the flaming sword. And um, sometimes we- Oh, wait, 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 wait. That's what he did. You just did it. The cherubim is. (laughs) Cherubim are. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) So the cherubim are there with the flaming sword. Oh, yeah, the flaming sword. Again, we talked about how duality is sort of introduced on the way out, but then when you're approaching back in to the garden, right, and the cherubim are there with the the flaming sword, there's actually another sort of division that happens. But what it is is it's it's a it's a way of cutting away the false self from the true self. Yeah. So that the true self can then be united with God in the garden. Right. And so it's an interesting paradox where there is there's division happening both on the way out and the way in, except that on the way out it's a, a split of our true nature into two, but those those two aren't opposed to each other. They're complementary. Whereas on the way in, it's a, a splitting of the false self from the true self. Anyway, that's sort of the symbolism that's going on there with it. When, when you kind of get down into some of the deeper layers. And obviously, it's not the only way of looking at it, as, as we always say, but it's, it's a very fascinating way for me. Yeah, I'm so glad you remembered the, the flaming sword. I left that out. Well, with that, you know, the rest of Genesis 2, as we talked about it pre-show, there's nothing there that's not covered in Moses 6. So if we could just move into Moses 6, I think that's the easiest way to deal with this. Sure. So basically, yeah, most of, of Genesis 5 is a discussion of genealogy. And there's some very odd things, at least from our maybe modern reading that we would come across in this, that I would say at least I've asked myself and scratched my head about a long time, but never really spent much time looking into it before. And that's this concept of the longevity of these uh, patriarchs so to speak, in this book here of these different generations, you know, Adam, Seth, Enos, so forth. Ben, before you go into the the longevity of the patriarchs, mm-hmm. can we talk a little bit about why genealogy in the first place? You know, why is this even here? Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, did I say Genesis 2 instead of Genesis 5? I, I think know. you did. I don't but know I what chapter we're dealing with here. <laughs> I know the content though. So, <laughs> you know, because we talked about this pre-show, we don't really know why. And it's not we are not biblical scholars, and we did give that disclaimer. I think that's recorded at the beginning of every show, right? And if not, it was in the introductory recording or the first podcast right. introducing the Old Testament. But we do do our homework, and we don't really know the answer to this question, even after doing our homework. 
But I, I wanted to share something just to give you, the listener, a sense of how other people might think about genealogy differently than we do. As much as genealogy is important to us as Latter-day Saints, we're not quite like the modern Arabs today. You and I studied Middle East Studies Arabic. We lived in the Arab world studying there. And we know that the Arabs, first of all, it's part of their names, right? The genealogy is built into the names. You find out whose people's parents and sons and, and whatnot are just in their names. And then, look, we all have cousins. You said you have a hundred first cousins, right? I know my cousins, but not as many cousins as the Arabs know. They just, gen this is, of course, a, <laughs> a, a generalization, right? But I just met, I've personally met some of them. I had a neighbor in Houston years ago told me he was going up to Dearborn, Michigan, where so many Arabs live, right? Where he was going to go to a family reunion. Well, this really means all the Arabs, you know, and they're, they're all these people, all the Arabs are his family and he knows how they're related to him, right? So they really place a big importance on this and they really know their genealogy. And I actually don't know why, just in the same way that I don't know why these uh, genealogies are given. Now, of course, in the, in the New Testament, that's a little easier to understand where the New Testament authors are giving us that Jesus comes from the genealogy that was prophesied. But here, I don't know. Well, it's it's often hard to articulate. Like you might even ask somebody that feels that's important, why do you think it's important? And to them it's like almost tautological. It's like Right. It just is. Like, what do you mean? You know, and then they go and they just say, Well, this is my genealogy. And it's like, well, why is that important? And and it just is, right? And it's not it's not to say that there isn't a reason that it's just sometimes those kinds of things that are very deep within us are very difficult to articulate why they are important. And and I see that that as as a very possible thing that we're looking at here. You know, these are very old genealogies that were handed down mostly orally at first, but then only written down later. And you know, they they persisted all this time and they were just so important and it wasn't always obvious that people could just explain why they were important. You know, they just were. Yeah, I'll give you one more personal example before we move into the the longevity of these patriarchs. These are patriarchs. They're not just anybody's, right? There's a really important people in the history of the people whose record this is, right? Right. Which in some senses are our own people too, right? Uh, as we're adopted into that to be a part of that those people, uh, God's people. So when it comes to, you know, for me, my grandfather was a national hero in Venezuela. And so I, to me, it's meaningful. It always has been. It's been, this is something that was given to me. It's not that I decided this. It's that I was told all my life that I was the firstborn grandson of my grandfather and I was the son of his firstborn son. You see what I mean? So yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm just the guy that was born and my dad's just the guy that was born, but it becomes something meaningful, right? That he was the first son and uh, of the, my grandfather and I was his first son. Yeah. So more recent psychological studies have shown that people develop a stronger sense of emotional resiliency, which is which is a measure of actual like ability to confront life problems and and challenges and uh you know come out stronger on the other side. This emotional resilience, it's significantly improved when people know their family history, like they know their genealogy. 
And so there's something else there, you know, just the fact that you're, you know, your ancestry or, or that you identify with a particular ancestry. I don't know that it even has to be literal or like, like the adoption thing is a real thing. Oh yeah. We've adopted two kids in my family, right? Just the fact that you identify with a particular ancestry and then learning about that, it gives emotional resiliency because you're, you're looking back, you're saying, I come from this either genetically or tradition or, you know, whatever it be. And those people survived whatever it was they survived, right? And I'm a product of that. That means that strength is within me as well. And so can I, right? Yeah. 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 So, you know, maybe we've come to, you know, some sort of an explanation of it there. Certainly not exhaustive, but it, it definitely is a, is a pretty good reason in, in my estimation. Yeah, I like that we've we've come up with a few good reasons why genealogy should matter and why it may have been important to those who wrote this. Well, they would have known these names too. Um, there was probably more oral traditions and stories about particular names and characters that wouldn't necessarily have survived in writing. We have a lot of apocryphal stuff there, but but in any case, that a lot of that may have been oral and passed down. And so not just the genealogy, but there was a lot of other stuff associated with it, sort of the, the metadata, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as we look at these, these longevity um, accounts, we could say in, in Genesis 5, where it talks about how, you know, Adam lived for over 900 years. And, you know, we've got all these people living for eight, 900 plus years. We say, what what is really going on here? Not only do we have these recounted, the genealogy, but they're also saying that they've lived for these ridiculously long periods of time. And I'm just going to come out and say that I don't think that that's like, I personally don't think that's actually the case. I don't personally think that a historical Adam lived for 900 and what does it say? 930 years <laughs> or that Seth lived for, you know, whatever it says that he lived for. But I think there is something to the account. I just don't think that we're going to find significance in the literal number of that saying, you know, that he lived that long. There are a few possible explanations for why it's recorded this way. And one that, that you know, when I came across it, I originally thought it was kind of out there in, in left field, but... The more that I kind of sat with it a little bit, the more I realized, well, that there may be something to this, and that is of numerology. Oh, that's the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you have, for example, Neron Kaiser, right? Neron Kaiser, which is the the numerical value of it gives of six 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 gives you the name of, sure. of Nero Caesar, right? So that you don't actually name him, but you're able to somehow surreptitiously talk about him in your text. Um, and what's going on with him. And, and by the way, this tells you that uh, it's one more evidence that the book of Revelation isn't about the end times, but about, or at least not exclusively, but it really has a lot to do with what's going on at the time that it's written. Right? Right. This is something that right. matters yeah. to the people who, who, who it circulated among when it was written. So that's one example, right? Yeah, the symbolism, you know, was very apparent to the people living in that, that time and, and place. It was presented. Yeah. So did you do some math on these numbers? I, I didn't, you know, some people have gone and done the math. You, right. know, you could look it up, but there could be some numerology going on here where, you know, you add up certain, certain symbolic numbers in a certain way and you do some, some very contrived math with it. And, <laughs> you know, it, it shows 
that there's some significance to the fact that this person lived this num- you know amount of time. You know, it means that they were a very wise or or perfect person or something like that, right? Yeah. The trouble with these is you can always find the answer that you're looking for. Right. Exactly. You can bend it to make the math kind of whatever you want, like an accountant, right? They can make it <laughs> look the way, whatever way they want it to be. Yeah, but as in the example I give, it was a thing, right? Numerology, all of the Hebrew letters have a numerical value. I know people who study this. Correct. Yeah, there is something to that. And so the reason I bring it up is because, you know, one of the original things we talked about in the intro is that there is this ancient world view that is underlying all the assumptions that go into just the existence of of the text you know when it it came to be and those aren't always obvious to us we they're not always scrutable right we we can't always really understand all the mentality behind it and so we posit this as as look, there, there's a way of thinking about these things that are presented here that's not always obvious to us. It could be something like this. Another thing that, that could be going on is just that really all the other ancient surrounding cultures around the time that the Hebrew Bible is being you know, formed and, and written down and composed and so forth have these same types of uh, mythological characters. And what I mean by that is the longevity. So you get characters within Babylonian genealogies that have lived for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And then there's other traditions, other religious traditions in ancient uh, times that have stories and myths about characters and heroes and ancestors that have lived for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so this is actually a very common type of thing within the mythological genre to have characters or to have people or heroes or ancestors that have lived for a very long time. And there's many reasons for this, but it, but again, it's common. Yeah. So I see two ways to, to read that too, Ben. You know, one way is to say that the fact that they're doing it, like their neighbors are doing it tells you that that's the way of thinking in their place and time. These are real people living in real times, right? Right. In real places. Another way of thinking about it is that they maybe especially in exile and in some sense of perhaps inferiority that they want to, even if it's not their way of thinking about it, if it's the Babylonian way of thinking about it, that their heroes are as big as the Babylonian heroes, right? There's a form of imitation perhaps. Right. Exactly. Yeah, they're establishing their etiology, right? And they're saying these these are our foundational myths, and our heroes and and patriarchs, you know, have just as long a lifespans, and we're just as wise, and you know, just as accomplished. Sure. The other thing is that if if we do look at it as more of a, a historical account, we could take the the lifespans of these people as representational of their dispensational or uh, uh, influence. That is how long their name or their influence lasted. So one critic that was was discussing this said something like that, that these represented epochs to which were given names of the personages especially prominent in such epochs who, in consequence of their comparatively long lives, were able to acquire an exalted influence. So this is from one 19th century critic, Vincent Gollert's. That makes sense, Ben. Not that the other, not that the other two explanations don't make sense, and even the numerological one, from from what I know, is plausible. That that these names denote 
sort of a period of time of influence of that person, not necessarily their their physical lifetime. Yeah, like dynasties. Yeah, actually, that's a good way of looking at it. Dynasties as maybe would be represented within a tribe or a clan. Sure, especially when sons of kings become kings and then bear the same name. We see this even in the Book of Mormon, right? Right, yeah. Nephi, that becomes the name of, of the king. You can easily see how if we take all the years that there was a, a Nephi as king, that could be the, the age of Nephi, right? And, and that would be, yeah, the age, I like that, the age of Nephi, because sure. that's ambiguous. Sure. It's not a perfect explanation because we get things like, well, Adam had Seth when he was 100 and something years old, and then he still lived for 800 more years, right? Sure. But I think there's something to that, uh, some potential explanation or combination of them. So, yeah. So anyway, that's that's kind of the commentary on on the longevity there. Did you have anything else you thought to add on that? Question? No, just the, just we leave you with that to ponder. There's some ideas. Yeah. So the bulk of what we will sort of get into here with Moses chapter 6 goes along the strain of the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is it's sort of a whole topic within apocryphal literature. And the concept has been around for quite a long time because the book of Enoch itself is referenced and quoted many times within the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. And yet we look within our scriptural canon of the Old and New Testament, and we say, where is this book of Enoch, right? And so scholars for a long time said these ancient writers of these texts obviously had some sort of book of Enoch they were referencing. Maybe they weren't all referencing the same book of Enoch. They could have been different ones, but they were looking at some sort of text that we don't really have. Yeah. And it's it's not hard to understand the idea that there could be more than one book of Enoch when we just covered, you know, six canonized accounts of the creation in our own tradition, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, there are today many books of Enoch. Some of them are very old texts. You know, I think the oldest one goes back to the third century BCE. But, you know, and some are, are much newer types of texts or translations, pseudo-epigraphal. Others are, are apocryphal. They're probably all pseudo-epigraphal uh, to a certain extent um, if they purport, purport to actually be written by Enoch himself. Right. Who, who they would say, you know, lived thousands and thousands of years BCE, so. Right. And they're all apocryphal. Right? Yeah. Because they're not canon. Yeah. They're not canon. And yet they're they're read and not not only are they mentioned in the bible and maybe it's because they're mentioned in the bible but they've been read in our own tradition from the beginning uh, from of the restoration period right and the only one not in name but it is canonized is what we have in the book of moses that's part of chapter 6 and chapter 7 of moses which if it were its own separate thing we would call the book of enoch now, Nibley did a whole lot of study and commentary on this, and even though it's old, there's still a lot of good stuff um, that he mentions on it. And I, I think the value in it is that he he does uh, a good job of sort of bringing in and digesting a, f a bunch of these other Enoch apocryphal texts to relate them to what we have here in the Book of Moses. And so it's a good like introduction from a Latter-day Saint point of view, maybe, to that concept. Um, so if you if people wanted to look at that, there's they just Google a strange thing in the land, 
Hugh Nibley and the, the church has all the articles that he wrote on that. And they published them in, in the Ensign. Now, that was like in the 70s. And since you know Nibley did that, there's been a whole lot more research done on the stuff to update or, or modify some of his uh, assertions in it. But again, there's still a lot of very, very fascinating things in there, just pulling from these apocryphal uh, books of Enoch. Yeah, you know, for example, D. Michael Quinn in his book, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview, Uh refutes some of the claims that that Nibley makes in A Strange Thing in the Land. Again, you can find this, you can read this in your church scriptures app, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the points that's made there that you uh, brought up, Chris, and and then I, I looked at a little bit was that there was a Book of Enoch translation that was probably available to Joseph Smith. Right. Didn't Nibley say there wasn't one available to him? Well, it was translated and published in Europe in 1821. And it wasn't obvious that it made its way to America, to the US before the late 1800s or mid 1800s, well after Joseph Smith. But I believe- Are we talking about the the Lawrence Lawrence translation? translation? Yeah. Well, D. Michael Quinn shows the Lawrence translation available in Joseph Smith's Correct. Review. But that is new research that discovered that that was available. Oh, you mean newer than Nibley's? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. 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 So that's what I'm saying. You know, Nibley didn't originally think he knew about it, but he didn't originally think it was available. Right. So Quinn does show that it, it was available. What's interesting is that it is kind of a different book of Enoch, though. And so I can see it being very possible or likely that Joseph Smith did come across. It was al- almost be one of those types of experiences that he had with the book of Abraham, where this thing was presented to him, and then that was sort of a catalyst for you know him asking or, or getting revelation. And then what we have is is what we get in in Moses 6 and 7, which is a very Latter-day Saint flavor of what you would call the Book of Enoch, right? There's a lot of things in here that are anachronistic or the the terminology isn't Old Testament-y, right? And so they're they're very Latter-day Saint-ish, you know, coming down to the concept of only begotten and, you know, actually using Jesus Christ and, and stuff like that. Terms that wouldn't be used in the Old Testament, but within the Latter-day Saint tradition and what Joseph Smith was establishing, you know, he's putting it into the scriptural canon in broader context, and so he's using those terms. Yeah, and Joseph Smith's, you know, translation, which, you know, you and I have talked about on previous episodes, I think, he does this with the Book of Mormon too, right? I mean, you get that you have this this document that's supposed to be an Old Testament period document, and yet it deals with with the name of Jesus and the Christ and sure. all of these concepts that are Christian. Because while while the authors may not have known things this way, the translator does. And actually, in Joseph Smith's concept of translation, that's really what translation is about. I mean, he's not reading the plates. He doesn't know the language. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't. he's not even looking at them when he's translating. He's looking into a hat, right, with the peepstone. So what we're dealing with is an updating, right? And he's not the only one who thinks this way, by the way. This is in his milieu, in his time and place. Translation has this sense of bringing things from one context into another context, and it's more about meaning than it is about words. It's like when you watch a modern adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, right? Or or, or <laughs> the tragedy of Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> I think it comes out the day after tomorrow. I yeah, yeah. 
So you get these things where the the story and and some of the content and the themes are essentially the same, but like the uh, setting and and character and you know and the way that it's presented is is much more updated and modern and within a, a particular context. Yeah. So you were saying, Ben, pre-show, that according to your research and doing your own homework, that you found that even though Nibli had wrong, that he thought there wasn't a translation of the Book of Enoch available to Joseph Smith, and it turns out the Lawrence one was, that some of Nibli's points may still be valid, and that the Lawrence translation and that particular Book of Enoch doesn't have the things that the Book of Moses has in Moses 6, right? Sure. That are found in an older Book of Enoch, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of things here, but the one that makes a lot of the most unique parallels is actually that oldest text that was part of the Qumran discovery that's in Aramaic that comes from the 3rd century BCE. And there's a lot of things in there that are unique to that text. It's called the Book of the Giants, but it's it talks about Enoch, so it's basically just another book of Enoch, we could call it by that name, that are only found, as we currently understand, within that text and within the Moses chapter 6 and 7. So take it for, for whatever that is. Uh, you know, Nibley took it to mean, oh, well, there's no way Joseph Smith could have known this, you know. But obviously, we don't know all that Joseph Smith had access to, things that he, he could have brought. But Although we do know a lot. From D. Michael Quinn. Current scholarship can't can't account for it, but obviously. Yeah. So these giants you speak of, the, these would be the Nephilim, right? That that the Jewish tradition explains as fallen angels. That's the idea, and they're not brought up here in chapter six. I don't think it talks about them as giants, but in that Aramaic text, these people that come to Enoch and say, "Who are you? And where do you come from? And what are you doing?" In that book of the giants, like they're giants. Yeah. There's actually, like I said, dozens of different books of Enoch. They all kind of, there's some overlap. There's some similar themes, but this is what you're going to get with apocryphal text, right? Because people are copying, they're writing down what they remember. They're changing the story to fit their particular context and presentation, all these sorts of things. You're going to get like all these different versions of the book of Enoch. And and just one of the interesting things about what we have here in Moses is that there's all these different apocryphal texts. There's like little pieces of a lot of them within this. Yeah, well, canonical texts are going to be subject to a lot more control, right? Right. They're going to be, there's going to be a custody of making sure that they're handed down in a canonical, uh, you know, recension, right? Well, yeah, and that's part of why something gets called apocryphal because you can't establish its its custody, right? Right. So because it's apocryphal, then uh, if it is being handed down and transmitted, then there's less control over it, and so it can that makes sense, right? That there could be different versions, right? And so this is a text, though, that has again been read in the Christian tradition in general, and in our tradition in particular. And the interest has ebbed and flowed. In my understanding, the interest in the book of Enoch has sort of gone up and down throughout Latter-day Saint history. And the same is true of the book of Jasher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, probably not much interest right now, huh? (laughs) In the book of Jasher. Well, I think the book of Jasher is actually making a comeback. And I do hear the book of Enoch talked about. And we I keep saying the book of Enoch. We've established that it's the books of Enoch, right? Correct. Yeah. That does get talked about. So yeah, if you're looking for the book of Enoch and you'd like to buy it and read it, good luck. It's not that you can't buy a book of Enoch. You can probably buy several, but you can't buy the book of Enoch. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, somebody that is interested in this definitely should swoop them up and, and read them because there's, there's going to be a lot of very interesting things in those. You know, I can say from my personal experience, Ben, that I've gotten a lot out of reading apocryphal texts. I haven't read the book of Enoch or the books of Enoch, but I have read from the apocrypha and I've, I've found it to be valuable. Yeah. So we're going to kind of dive here into the text a little bit and talk about a few of the things that, that stood out to us. We're not going to reference specifically Genesis 5 because um, the stuff that we see in Genesis 5 comes out to us within Moses 6. So like for, for my purposes, I read through Genesis 5 and then when I was reading through Moses 6, I realized there wasn't a whole lot that's in Genesis 5 that's not already in, in Moses 6. Yeah, and for the listener who's you know, who's doing their own homework and is actually, and and not everyone does this, right? You can read through this week's reading by reading first Genesis 5, then Moses 6. But if you're actually reading them and comparing them side by side, it's tricky when you have to flip back and forth between the front of the book and the back of the book, isn't it, Ben? And even if you have to use tabs in the app, it's still not as easy as just reading the one and then the other. If you have the separate ones. Yeah, that would help, wouldn't it? Rather than the whole quad, like if you have your triple and then your separate Bible, that's probably a way to go. Then you could set them side by side. Or if you have an NRSV, the way that I've done it, anymore is I just get out the NRSV and I have that just right next to it so that I'm not flipping back and forth. That makes it easier, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and I've, you know, found a lot of value in the NRSV, like the, the words that it it's translated as make a little more sense for our, our modern dialect. So a lot of things are a little more obvious. You know, while we're on the topic, I'll just share one other idea because, you know, you can get really cheap scripture. So even if you wanted to use the same quad, you could get another one, right? They're not expensive. Right. Another idea is I actually took, I have a study book of Mormon, by which I mean there is one from the Maxwell Institute. And that's a great book, by the way, the the study book of Mormon. But I'm talking about before that came out, I just took a book of Mormon when I was a BYU student. I took it down to the print shop and I had them chop the binding off and spiral bind it so that it could lay flat on my desk. Good way to go about it. And I used it as a a reading copy to mark up. It's a good way to go about it. So um, coming in here to Moses chapter 6, this starts off with a discussion of Adam and then him and Eve having a son, Seth, who then they talk about how Seth is sort of their replacement for Abel that died, right? He's the next one in the genealogy. Then Seth begets Enos. And the name Seth, you said, just means what? Yeah, it means second or a replacement or, you know, one that comes after. So the the idea here is that the name of Seth is is the one who who replaces Abel. Sounds a little harsh, but <laughs> it's just what the name means. <laughs> yeah, right. And as uh, imagine if you use that with your kids. And, and as we move forward with the Bible, we'll actually see this a lot. Yeah. We'll see this a lot, right? That the names aren't actually names. I mean, when I said that pre-show, you you objected, right? Because, well... It would be that our names aren't actually names. <laughs> it could right? be that those are names that they use, right? And, and uh, so we, we don't think... We don't name our kids according to some meaning. And so that's, again, a difference between the way they did things and the way we do things. Sure. Although this there could be exceptions even in our time, of course. But there's also a sense in which some of these names are archetypal. And I can think of one in particular, as I mentioned to you, Pre-Show Ben, which is Hamalek, which is in the King James Version. Yeah. It's just not a name at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the king. Yeah. Hamalek just means the king. 
So a lot of these names, it's worth looking into the meaning of these names, whether you think of them archetypally or as actual names, they're names that have meaning behind them. Yeah. So in our tradition, we don't have the practice of naming our children using our vernacular vocabulary, right? Right. But it doesn't mean that we don't necessarily name our children with intentional names that have meaning, right? Right. So like we named our son Nathaniel, which means the gift of God or God gives, but that's that's of Hebrew origin, right? And so we are looking to that meaning, but but it's not in our own tongue. It definitely would be a little different if I named our child God's gift or something like that, right? <laughs> right. That would be strange, wouldn't it? Whereas Nathaniel is a biblical name. It would be strange within our, within our tradition, within our culture. But, you know, for other cultures, it's not like – I know there are some African cultures who would name their children straight up things like blessing or stuff like that. And that was an intentional. Yeah. So there is that. But coming into these verses of chapter 6 – the one that stood out to me as we move through this is verse six, verse six and seven. And so I'll read this here. It says, and by them, their children were taught to read and write, having a language which was pure and undefiled. Now, the by them, Christopher, you and I were kind of going back and trying to find what is this them referencing? And at first we thought maybe it was the books of remembrance, but it doesn't say books. It just says book. And so the them must be referring to the people because it's talking about the generations, talking about parents having children and then teaching them. And so the concept here that we're talking about is the idea that parents teach their children, right? both academically reading and writing, but also teaching them about God, right? Teaching them about their relationship with God. And so then the, that's that's the main idea here. And then in, in verse 7, it says, Now this same priesthood, which was in the beginning, shall be in the end of the world also. And this word priesthood really comes out of nowhere. It wasn't mentioned all the chapter before, and it wasn't mentioned in this chapter. So when they say this same priesthood, what are they talking about? What same priesthood, right? Yeah, I could find no other thing that it's referencing except for the concept talked about in verse 6, and that is parents teaching their children. And I think that's an excellent definition of priesthood because if we if we just look at a divine example, you know, we talk about how the priesthood is God's power to exalt his children and that he uses it in order to save his children. So is that not what he's acting in? His priesthood of teaching his children, directing them, and and bringing them up in the way, right? So to me, that is a very interesting definition straight out of these two verses of what priesthood is. It's parents teaching children. Yeah, I love that you said the way too, because I know we're going to talk about Enoch and how he walked with God. Yeah. And that's the way, right? Yeah. Just like Jesus says, come follow me. Yeah. And he is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Right. So the next thing I would do is jump to verse 9, and this is sort of to circle back to a point that we've made before. So verse 9 says, In the image of his own body, male and female, created he them. Obviously, this is, this is talking about God creating man. It says, Created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. So by man, you mean human. In the day when they were created and became living souls in the land upon the footstool of God. So yeah, it uses the they pronoun to refer to Adam. 
And so what we're talking about here, and actually, this is where Genesis 5 does come in use, because especially in the NRSV, instead of saying, you know, he created Adam, it says he created humankind, right? which is basically what the word Adam means. Right, it just it means humankind. Yeah. As a fun side note, you know the the Hebrew Bible reads, and when I I don't actually know biblical Hebrew, I've studied a little. I, I can do word studies. I know enough to to be dangerous, right? And so my my Hebrew pronunciation sounds like a like a uh, like a Yemeni Jew maybe because <laughs> of my Arabic. But the the Bible tells us bara Elohim Adam min haAdama, which means uh, Elohim God created human. Out of humus, and that, that those homonyms, human and humus, and, and the relationship mm-hmm. between them shows up in the in the original text again. Adam min ha adama ha meaning the so Adam min ha adama human from humus. Yeah, and it's not often that that works, right? That you can in translation get that same kind of homonymity. That's really cool. Yeah, that is interesting that we can get that out of out of English in that case. But this verse isn't talking about the particular character of an individual named Adam. Here in this verse, we're talking about humanity as the offspring of God. Yeah, you know, not only in this verse, Ben, but in much of what we've been reading about Adam and Eve and about about Adam especially has been about humans. Exactly. Not necessarily about a man named Adam. And this verse really drives that home. As John Walton pointed out in one of his books we read, Adam couldn't have called Eve Eve, and Eve couldn't have called Adam Adam if they were these primordial humans, right? If they're the first man and woman because- The first homo sapiens. Right, the first homo sapiens because they wouldn't have Hebrew. They might have been the first humans in the sense of what we're talking about archetypically here. Exactly. So if I go back, you know, Hebrew language comes much later than that you know, third uh, third millennium. So then by the same token, this idea of in verse six of a language which is pure and undefiled really looks to me like it's a matter of the the teaching that is being transmitted. You know, not necessarily the language in which it's being transmitted, but the truths that are being taught by the parents to the children in this priesthood capacity. Well, and I, and I don't look at it as their verbal language. I look at it as the way in which they taught, the way in which they communicated. That's exactly what I mean. Right? Because if we're talking about this as priesthood, we go back to DNC 121, right? Yes. This is all the, the way that you teach out of love and persuasion and gentleness and kindness. That's pure and undefiled. This is true parenting, right? Right. And as far as the language goes, then we go back to DNC 1, which is God is going to teach his children in whatever language they use. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we, we, I think verses like this one, and I don't know if there are others, but certainly this one give us this idea that, that there's this Adamic language that is pure and undefiled, meaning the language itself. And if we could just speak that language, then all truths would be obvious by, by <laughs> yeah. calling things by the right word or there's some kind of what is that? I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And people have taken that literally, yeah. right? People have taken that literally in a way that uh, that I don't think is useful. No, it's not. One way to look at it is metaphorically, right? That There is this language that can teach us truth, but it's the language of the spirit. It's the unspeakable. 
language, the ineffable truths that we can learn through our relationship with God. Oh, yeah. And and that's a whole other thing, right? Yeah. That's the, if you want to say that's the archetypal language, right? That's the, the Adamic language, really, right? If you want to say that, I'm with you. Yeah. So th- that's a matter of experience, right? And that's uh-huh. something that isn't about words. It can't be put into, into words. Yeah. So that's where I would go with that. If people want to get literal about the language, I'd be like, well, yeah, but even that's going to be inadequate. Even that, if you want to look at it literally, would still be pointing to something else, right? Something beyond that. Yeah. You know, I have another quote that comes to my mind here from, it was actually, I shared it with, with Lindsay and it was actually, she put it in a quote image. Uh, for Latter-day Peace Studies, most experiences are unsayable. They become real to us in a space no word has entered. And that's from Rainer Maria Rilke's Letters to a Poet. Yes, that. (laughs) Yeah, that's the language, the way you felt. Yeah. The truth that that communicated to you that's beyond words. Yeah, I really do think those that have had the experience of, of sitting with their children and, and teaching them through love, I think they're going to have an idea of what we're talking about there, right? And they know through this experience and through this reading, which again, I don't see another reading here that's even possible. Where What is this priesthood that comes out of nowhere, if not what's being discussed directly above? We've gone back even to the previous chapter and found no no other answer to it. This means that if you're teaching your children, you're experiencing priesthood power. Exactly. And who is doing most of the teaching of our children? Their mothers. I mean, that's been codified in the family proclamation, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some to that. So I'm going to go to verse 15. Ben, can I just say, sorry, not, not I said priesthood power. I'd like to say priesthood authority. Mm-hmm. Remember, if we go back to Noah Webster 1828, because our language has changed, and language, it always changes, and it actually tends to degrade in some sense, right? If you go back, I studied ancient Greek. The complexity of the language shows a complexity of thought because they go together, right? You think with your language. And, and if you, even if you go forward to Koine Greek, it's already a lot simpler. And if you come forward to, to the languages that come from there, you know, our own English has a lot from Greek. It's even simpler. And if we come to American English, simpler still, right? <laughs> but, but my point is that authority has a sense, other than the one we think of in terms of hierarchy, of just having had an experience. So if someone has an experience of teaching their children, as we read here in Moses 6, then they have authority. Yeah. They can speak from authority. Author is that's that's the origin of something, right? So like the origin of that experience was within you, so you have that authority. Exactly. Yeah, you speak with authority means you've had the experience yourself. It's not secondhand. Absolutely. Yeah, that's actually a definition that that uh, Shaul and I went with when we talked about priesthood before as well. Yeah, as I was saying, I'm going to go to verse 15 here. And the children of men were numerous upon all the face of the land. And in those days, Satan had great dominion among men and raged in their hearts. Mm. And from thenceforth came wars and bloodshed, and a man's hand was against his own brother in administering death because of secret works seeking for power. Now, we've said this a, a ton of times. Satan is the accuser here. And this imagery here of him raging in hearts, right? This just 
really doubles down on on our discussion about Satan or the accuser being this psychological phenomenon within us that presents our our psyche with these tendencies, right? Starting with the accusation are going to end up towards violence. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, Ben. I've I've never had Satan range in my heart. <laughs> the accuser I've always experienced as, as outside of me. It's I've never been accused by the man in the mirror, you know? I mean, actually, it's funny because if that were true, if what I'm saying is true, and it's not, right, then I'm lacking some self-awareness, hmm. right? If if I'm not the one, if that accusation isn't coming from within me and I need somebody else to tell me, uh, if I have done something wrong, right, then I'm lacking some self-awareness. And here's what I find too, Ben, oftentimes is that the accuser is actually, you know, making something out of nothing or at least making a, a mountain out of a molehill, yeah, right? Yeah. And telling me somehow that I can't turn to God, that I can't repent. It's too big a deal. Exactly. Yeah, it's too big a deal. Or sometimes it's it's not a, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's not a big yeah. deal at all when it's Ignore actually something it. that's keeping me from uh, experiencing God, mm-hmm. being close to God. Yeah. yeah. One or the other lie, right? This is an interesting way to, to segue into talking about how Enoch goes out and preaches because, you know, part of the concept of, of preaching repentance is – bringing people or helping people become aware of this fact that Satan is raging in their hearts, right? Right. Or the accuser is is speaking to them. So their false self accuses them of being less than their true self. Yeah. So I like where he where this goes over in verse 26. When we so we actually get to the the person of Enoch here, um after we go through some of these generations, which we've we've talked about the the concept of the longevity there. And we get over here to verse 26. And it came to pass that Enoch journeyed in the land among the people. And as he journeyed, the Spirit of God descended out of heaven and abode upon him. Now, if you've ever had the chance of traveling to new cultures and meeting new people and understanding their customs and their values and their hopes and dreams, then I think you're you're going to understand maybe what Enoch is experiencing a bit at this point when he's going out and and understanding the people. Because notwithstanding all of the the wickedness that has been decried in these verses before, these are still people, right? They they still they have children and and they have societies, and there's good there. And I think Enoch, as he's going out and experiencing this in travel, he's seeing that and he's coming to to love the people. And that is a, an absolutely necessary precursor to his ability then to preach to them and call them to repentance. Because there's nothing that repentance is if it's not an outreach of love to help people um, view God differently than they've been viewing God before. Yeah, and there's the old adage that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I love that reading, Ben. You know, I've experienced it myself as a traveler, and and I love how this takes us out of the, I don't know what the other reading would be, something like um, he just happened to, in his journeying, he arrived in the place where God could descend out of heaven and abide upon Mm. him. And it could be, you know, there could be a mountain, right? We've talked about that. But, But your reading gives us this sense of, before he's going to go preach to the people, he's going to live among them and get to know them. Well, there's a cause and effect mm-hmm. yeah. here. Like 
that, you know, it's not just like out of nowhere, God descends, like he, he's being brought to this experience with God by going out and being among the people and coming to, to know them. I mean, the, we see this in the story of Ammon and the sons of Mosiah, like right. they go over to travel among and be with the Lamanites. And it's not until they have, you know, actually gone in to live with them and, and start understanding them and, and work with them that they, they really start being able to show their love and call them to repentance. And it just has to be that way. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've read Robert Caro, who wrote on Robert Moses and on Lyndon Johnson. Caro, in, in researching Lyndon Johnson's early years, made a lot of trips out to West Texas before he realized that he actually had to move to West Texas, that he had to live there. Mm. That if you're just this guy that mm. flies in from New York, you're not going to get the whole story. Right, he got the whole story by actually moving to the hill country and living among the people, such that then those stories could come out. So the next thing I would do here in this chapter, I, I would jump over to verses thirty-four and and on. Did you have anything before that, Christopher, that you wanted to comment on? No, no. Let's go to thirty-four. Okay. So Enoch is, is is traveling, he's done all this, or he's going and traveling among the people and the Lord comes to him, right? And starts talking to him and, and telling him what his mission is going to be. And and what's interesting about this, and we're going to get into this here in a bit, is that, so we've got Joseph Smith giving us the experience of Moses and Moses giving us the experience of Enoch, who then gives us the experience of Adam. <laughs> <laughs> So this is ostensibly a book of Moses, right? right? That Moses wrote this about Enoch. And and so we've got many of these, you know, inception layers of prophets going on here. But uh, this is, you know, this calling of Enoch is akin in many ways to the calling of Moses. Like there's many parallels here that are that are going on. You know, Enoch says, why why you're choosing me? I'm slow of speech, I'm but a lad. That's almost exactly what Moses says, right? Yes. When the when God says, I'm calling you to the people. Right. And, you know, the, the Lord says, open thy mouth and it shall be filled and I will give thee utterance for all flesh is in my hands and it will do as seemeth me good. That's almost, to me, that's almost like an I am that I am type of thing that he says to Moses because he's saying, hey, you know, like, just do what I told you to do and I'll take care of the rest, you know? Yeah, just tell him I am sent you. You're not responsible for an outcome. Just go Just go teach. I'll do the rest. So here we get that Enoch still, you know, he expressed to the Lord his, his um, you know, self-doubt inadequacy here. Um, the Lord says, all thy words will I justify. And then he says later, therefore walk with me. The concept that the Lord would be right there with him reminiscent of, of Christ saying to the disciples, come follow me. Yeah, I'm reminded of Abraham too, who walked with God. Yeah. And and backing up a little bit, he's told that he'll have power over waters, just as Moses did in the Sea of Reeds. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So many parallels here, which is interesting it being in the book of Moses, right? <laughs> so it's interesting because as we look at these parallels and and as you've pointed out, that you have someone telling someone's experience of telling someone's experience of telling of someone's experience. Both of these things give us a sense in which these prophets are united, clearly in a in a line, right, of, of prophets. 
right? In in a, in a tradition of prophecy. Well, they go backwards. You know, you got Joseph Smith, yeah, going back to Moses, who then goes back to Enoch, who then goes back to Adam, right? Right. So from the from the living prophet giving the revelation to the the first prophet as as we consider Adam to be, and so it does show that line of authority. And again, I'm talking about experience of God, not about hierarchy. Right. And it also shows us, it shows us what prophecy is, right? What a prophet is. It shows us this, this, um, I want to use the Islamic term, nabuwa, right? What, what is prophecy? We don't talk a lot about prophetology in our tradition, hmm. but that's a question that's always on my mind, Ben, is how does prophecy work? And so I think here we see a pattern of what a prophet looks like. And that's important, right? To see it. So when I say archetype, I mean a model, right? Something that follows a pattern in that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. These definitely all have very similar patterns in how they're laid out. So the the Lord then, after he's he's telling him all these things, he then gives Enoch an ordinance, right? So like after the discussion, he then gives Enoch something to do. Because you know, we're very ritualistic creatures. You know, not only do we need discussion, we need like action. Right to, to in order to understand. So the Lord says, "Okay, anoint your eyes with clay and wash them." And this is this is something that Enoch does to to represent symbolically what the Lord is is about to teach him. Like I said, this is some ordinance that He's given Enoch. We don't practice this ordinance regularly, but here it is for this prophet, and it meant something to him. You know, there's something else that I see here too, Ben. Maybe not necessarily in the text, although why not? especially because of what you said, right, where where it's not just about words but about works, is that the, the, the Hebrew concept, this ancient Near Eastern concept of words, well, sometimes we see in the scripture that in the scriptures in the Bible that we get God's words and God's works. And it turns out that that words, we think in a Greek way where, where words, where these abstractions have importance, but the Hebrew way of thinking is more about action. Hmm. And so the words and the works really are the same thing. Hmm. And so here we see again that out of these words that it's necessarily works that we get. Right. At least in their way of thinking, right? Yeah. So he anoints his eyes, he washes them, and it says, he beheld the spirits that God had created, and he beheld also things which were not visible to the natural eye. So now we're back to the first reading of the year. Yeah. We're getting another similar experience as that of Moses and Abraham. What chapters were they been? I'm not good at this. Yeah. So this is Moses chapter one. This is Abraham chapter three. Right. Yeah. So they're seeing all that God has created. Now, this is all condensed into a single verse, but it's the same experience, right? It is. We get a longer account from Abraham or a longer account from Moses. Here, it just gives us one verse, but we can infer from this that he's having the same kind of experience that Moses and Abraham had. He's beholding all all the spirits, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw back to the verse where we talked about him traveling among the people and and learning about them. Now he's actually seeing them the way God sees them. Yes, right, indeed. So this is his epiphany moment where he is able to, in a supernally repentant way, right, see things the way God sees them. And this is the moment where Enoch gains this power from his authority, 
right? From his experience and repentance of, of seeing things the way God sees them to then do what he goes on to do, which is to build the city. And when I say build, I don't mean make a building. I mean, gather the people into Zion and truly create a Zion people because of what he's gone through here, his experiences among the people, his humility before God, his acceptance of the calling, and then God opening his eyes to see things the way that he sees them. Then we get the Zion Enoch. Beautiful. So he goes to preach, says, a seer hath the Lord raised up unto this people. He goes to preach and we have these people come to him and they're they're confused. They don't know what he's talking about, but they're curious, right? And from this, um, he he gets his first proselytes, so to speak, right? The people that start listening to him, the people that are going to start following him. And his sermon is, he, he starts reading out of the book of, of Adam, okay? So it turns out there's a lot of apocryphal books of Adam as well, right? Pseudo-epigraphal, obviously. I, I don't think anything survives of Adam's writings. <laughs> um, but uh, this is what Enoch is then reading, right? This is his gospel to then teach to the people. And he's referencing Adam. This, you know, supposedly among the people would have been, a, you know, a, a known, well-known figure um, maybe it wasn't known among them at all, but to Enoch, he was an important figure, right? We, that's why we talked about the genealogy, you know? So he's referencing his people's hero, right? Yeah. Well, here's another way to think about the, the question, you know, uh, did any works of Adam survive? Who is Adam? You know, again, we've been reading about Adam in these chapters as a human. And so are we clear, right? So we, we don't, we automatically, we think of this we think of Adam in terms of this person with this name, and I'm not sure that that's what we're dealing with. That's a really good point. So if he's he's talking about Adam here, and, it, and especially when we get into what the, it actually says, it does seem to become obvious that this doesn't necessarily mean like an individual. What we're talking about here is Enoch is expounding an experience, a human experience, and he's doing it in a, a prophetic way. Yes. And and that prophetic way is persuasive to the people he's preaching to, right? It, it works for them. And it's been translated by Joseph Smith to give us a sermon. Right. Right. So if we if if we look at this rather as this sermon is to us, but Enoch would have taught a a comparable sermon that had the same meaning to the people that he taught to them, but maybe not these exact words. Yeah, so given what we've said here, Ben, we could say that the writings of Adam have survived. And here we are reading and discussing them because these are the works of men, men inspired by God, men who've walked with God. And again, as you know, what was it that was said by Joseph Smith? Well, it was revealed to Joseph Smith because he asked the question. The Apocrypha are taken out of the King James Bible around the time of Joseph Smith's boyhood in the Protestant tradition in America. And so when it comes to the Bible translation out of which we get this book of Moses, Joseph Smith asks, should I translate the Apocrypha? What about the Apocrypha? And what's the answer he gets? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you don't have to translate it. but Yeah, you don't need to do that. There's already translation and there, there's some truths there and it has to be read with, with, read with the Spirit. 
And and Ben, you and I said, or maybe it was Riley and I, we said, that's actually a great answer for how to read any of these texts, right? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah. My kids and I were talking about this last Sunday, you know, come follow me discussion at home. Given the arbitrary nature of the canonization process, I would read all of these texts that way. And and this is what we've been taught. I'm not saying anything. I don't think I'm saying anything controversial. We've been taught that we have to read them by the Spirit. Well, this is right out of Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, there's this whole section in Doctrine and Covenants that says exactly that. That's why that discussion came up with Shiloh and I earlier. Oh, right. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. But what I mean is we've been taught in our tradition that we should read the scriptures with the Spirit, that we understand the scriptures through the Spirit, and that the Spirit speaks to us as we read the scriptures. And that's not necessarily to have anything to do with what we're reading. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say it has nothing to do with what we're reading, but often the Spirit speaks to us between the lines. Yeah, not necessarily between the lines. Or we could be like Joseph and Sidney Rigdon, right? So they're they're reading about one thing and they receive a revelation of something else entirely different. And they're producing scripture, not just consuming it, right. but having their own experience of God and sharing that. And we should be doing the same thing. You know what? That was a point I wanted to bring up earlier. It's something that you said a while back that over in when we were talking about the children of uh, Adam being taught to read and write. Right. Right. They're not just reading scripture. They're writing scripture. Mm, yeah. And you you brought up once that, you know, you were – one of the things you were trying to teach your children was to write scripture. And and I don't think – we don't talk about it that way, but but that really is what we, we are encouraging people to do, you know, when we say record your experiences in your yes. journal or, you know, you know, do these things. You're writing scripture. That may not be scripture that's relevant to a broader range of people, but it's certainly going to be relevant to you and then probably to your children and, and your family that follow you. So it becomes scripture within that context. Yeah, every time I look at the the manual, the Come Follow Me manual, to find out what the next week's reading is, that's the first thing I see. Now, I don't actually read the manual. I just look for the reading. But because right below the reading, I'm able to see it. It always says, record your impressions, right? I think that's my favorite part of that manual is the first thing it says for each of the lessons is read it and write down what you your impressions or what you think, what the Spirit teaches you. And then it's like, Here's some some other things that you might want to consider, but like that's the most important part of it. And it comes first, right? Yeah, I love that. And it reminds me too, uh, I don't know why, it just reminds me of how all but one surah in the Quran out of 114 surahs begins with, in the name of God, the merciful, the beneficent, mm. right? This idea of, I love that, that every every chapter in the Come Follow Me manual starts in that way to say, record your impressions. God is giving this to you. Right? So record it. Yeah, it's a good thought. So I'm going to go here to verse 43. And Enoch continued his speech, saying, The Lord which spake with me, the same is the God of heaven, and he is my God and your God, and ye are my brethren. And why counsel ye yourselves and deny the God of heaven? What a verse. I like how Enoch presents the relationship here, that that he's not greater than they are, 
that his God isn't greater than their God. You know, a, a very common theme in, in ancient, not just literature, but, uh, you know, relationship between peoples would be for one people to come to another people and be like, our God's better than your God, right? <laughs> my God's going to beat up your God. Yeah. My God's going to beat up your God. And, you know, that, that's a very common theme throughout it. And it's just, it's so amazing to me to see Enoch here coming to these people and him saying, actually, our, our God's the same. I'm your brother. And don't forget about him. You, you're counseling among yourselves, he says. Why counsel ye yourselves and deny the God of heaven? You're having all these discussions together, but you're not appealing to a higher understanding. Your, your gaze isn't above more than what you're just discussing. You're not lifting up your views. You're not aspiring to something more. Um, you're not asking for for revelation, something beyond your your understanding, and so he's he's just trying to elevate that there for them. So then we we move into him. Basically, we, we talked about the the book of Adam. So we move into the book of Adam, as we might call it, because what it is is Enoch quoting from this book, um, and and we get into this discussion of of baptism and. We get Adam asking the Lord a question about baptism. Now, I know uh, in our discussions before, Chris, and I totally see where you're coming from on this, that you were a little uncomfortable with the concept of, of talking about like the person of Adam having literally been baptized. Right. If we're thinking about uh, a man named Adam and he being a primordial human, and, and my reason for that is when you see John the baptizer is baptizing people which is how he gets his name, right? The baptizer or the Baptist. And no one seems to know, no one's ever done this before that that they know of, right? If this was done before, it must have been lost. There's nothing like this going on. They don't understand what he's doing, why he's doing it. It's part of the the John's crazy, right? Because you get this vibe of John's just this crazy guy. And this is part of what makes him crazy. Is he's doing this underwater. weird thing that we don't, who does this, right? Yeah. So the closest we come in the Jewish tradition uh, would be a mikvah, which is a ritual cleansing, uh -huh. which is more like, I would compare that more to the washings and anointings in the temple than to a baptism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have both. So it's it, there's a distinction there, right? It's more of a ritual cleansing. And in fact, it was part of, it was something that um, menstruating women did. I'm not saying they were the only ones, but that's that just shows again as a ritual cleansing. And of course, that could be taken as a literal cleansing, but it really is a ritual cleansing that we're dealing with. We have ritual cleansing in, in Islam for prayer. In Islam. Right, exactly. Before prayer, there's a ritual cleansing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so I don't see you know any precedent for what John, what John the Baptist is doing. But of course, the tradition, our tradition says, you know, Adam was the first man. He was the first prophet. He was the first one to get baptized and receive the priesthood. I don't see, I think even the chapter headings here says something about Adam receiving the priesthood. We've dealt with the priesthood in this chapter. Yeah. It's not an accurate chapter heading because that it doesn't. Well, they usually aren't, right? Yeah. It, there's definitely some interpretation going on there because it doesn't literally say it. I, I'm going to mention this because I think, you know, for, for listeners, I don't read the chapter headings because they're not scripture. Yeah. And because they tell me how to read the scripture. I would caution people against chapter headings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're telling me how to read something, 
And there, why should I read it that way? I, I'd rather take the text on its own terms and I read it with the spirit, not with the chapter heading. Yeah, don't use the chapter heading to understand what the scriptures mean. The only really reason to use the chapter heading is if like you're looking for something and you're like, which chapter is this in? You know, you might read a chapter heading. Oh, it's in this one. You know, like it's a reference thing. That's exactly how I use it's it. It's not an interpretive tool. It should not be used as an interpretive tool. Well, it, it's meant to be, but I wouldn't use it that way. <laughs> <laughs> is it meant to be? I don't know. It looks like it is. When it tells you that uh, Adam was baptized and received the priesthood, it looks like it is. You know, that that reminds me, I was looking at my Italian Bible. Okay. And it, it does that. It sections off things like at the beginning, oh, this is the time, you know, the, the fall of Adam and Eve. And this is the, and, it, and it's got these he- subheaders, section headings. Those can be helpful. Already telling you. Yeah, but it's already telling you what it's about, right? It's like saying, this is about this. Okay. I mean, there's, it depends on how much they're saying, right? And how interpretive sure. they are. <laughs> are they just descriptive or are they interpretive, right? And that's the thing is, by the way, every Everything we're doing is interpretation. Dear listener, we are doing Midrash here. And by the way, we do this in a long tradition of doing it. Everybody's doing it. You know, I, I think I've mentioned this, but I'll say it again. Yeah, don't read the chapter headings. Yeah. Just listen to our podcast. I, I have, yeah, I, have a na- I had a neighbor. It's good, still a good friend of mine. We moved to another neighborhood. We're still in the same town. Still see him. I go to his church. He's a Baptist preacher. I went there Christmas Eve for for his service. Christmas Eve, sang some songs, you know, um, listened to the scriptures being read from the the story of Jesus, the nativity. But you know, when I first met him, we were talking. You know, uh, a Mormon and a and a Baptist, right? The, the the quintessential pairing, right? And he tells me, he says, "Well, we go by what the Bible says." And I just thought, whereas we we go by what we say the Bible says, and you go by what you say the Bible says. Now, of course, I wasn't thinking uh, there is the sense in which we interpret the Bible by the Book of Mormon, right? That's there is some there's something to that. I didn't I didn't see that. I was just thinking Bible for Bible, right? I have my Bible, you have your Bible, but you go by what the Bible says, whereas I do what I go by what the Bible says too. But really, we're all going by what we say the Bible says. And the Bible has to be interpreted and the scriptures have to be interpreted. And the way to interpret them is not by reading chapter headings or listening to Ben and Chris. It's by the spirit. Right. Good point. So we should stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the spirit speaks to you as you read the scriptures, as you read the commentary, maybe as you read the chapter heading, uh, as you listen to Ben and Chris. Yeah. But it's through the spirit that you learn. The spirit teaches you the truth. That reminded me of another point I was going to make yeah. about that was that, and and I don't know if this is a quote that comes from somewhere or it's just something that my brother says often. He says, you know, scriptures are less important for what they say than what they make you think. Yes, exactly. Right. Remember, the scriptures are the penultimate word of God. Mm-hmm. The penultimate, the second to last, right? The last word on God is his son. Right. The word of God which is an aesthetic argument, not a logos, not a, even though we call him the logos, that's the, that's the Greek idea, but it's this logos of God is actually not a rational argument. It's an aesthetic one. It's behold the man, ekeomo. Yeah. So um, I want to bring up verse 48 because I think it's kind of funny. Okay. It's funny because it, oh. You know, I read it and it made me think, it made me think of this other verse. And then I just realized it's actually in the footnote. How about, let's do this. Let me read one, you read the other. I'll read this one, you quote the other one, just for fun. How about that? Okay. 
So this is 48, okay. Moses 648. And you're going to read what, Ben? Second Nephi 225. Okay, here we go. And he said unto them, Because that Adam fell, we are, and by his fall came death, and we are made partakers of misery and woe. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. <laughs> the contrast. Yeah, the contrast. And and what's interesting to me is that, that both both can be true, but they seem to they be are. saying the opposite things. But but it it is fascinating within the context of this discussion that actually you know life is about misery and woe and joy. Well, we we think they're opposites. That's our dualistic mindset. Right, right. That's a really good point. You know, because we've we've entered into this dualistic world, so to speak, from the fall. Right, and uh, here we have this verse saying, you know, misery and woe. Now Enoch is speaking to these people and so he's also presenting them with a picture of of how they may be viewing life right and saying that yes that's the condition that you're in but let me elevate your view a little bit and let's let's go on a journey together so that you can see that misery and woe aren't all that life is about and they don't necessarily have to be as big a problem as you you make it out to be yeah. So then we get here to verse 53. And our father Adam spake unto the Lord and said, Why is it that men must repent and be baptized in water? Okay. So again, in the context of knowing that although we, we want to pin this on a particular Adam, we might be talking about not only just a, a metaphorical Adam, but also this discussion is a translation not a linguistic translation necessarily, uh, but a, a conceptual translation. And contextual too. A contextual translation, a cultural translation. Right. right? That's Joseph Smith translation. Into our contemporary cultural religious uh, context, right? So we get these questions about repentance and, and baptism. And the, the ideas that are wrapped up, the themes and, and truths that are wrapped up within the concepts of repentance and baptisms absolutely were relevant to this story. And are relevant to man, right? To humans. Yeah, exactly. To humans. But, but those exact type of things may not have been extant for, for this particular Adam that we're referencing here. That makes a lot of sense to me. The idea that for, for humans, for Adam as a human, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Right. So going back to this question, why is it that men must repent and be baptized in water? And man, the answer to this threw me for a little bit. And I had to I had to try to read some more verses to see if it helped, and it didn't end up really helping. So I had to sit with just this verse to figure out what, what maybe this was talking about. And then you found it wasn't new, right? So here's the answer. It wasn't new. Yeah. It just, I hadn't- You hadn't made the connection. Thought that's what this verse meant before. Yeah. Tell us what you found. And the Lord said unto Adam, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the Garden of Eden. That's why I get baptized? Because I've forgiven you? Yeah, I thought that was just the beginning of an explanation. And then the Lord was, you know, I always thought that was kind of a beginning. And then he goes on to expound upon that. But that's actually the answer just there. Because the next verse says, Hence came the saying abroad among the people. That Son of God hath atoned for original guilt, wherein the sins of the parents cannot be answered upon the heads of the children. For they are whole from the foundation of the world. 
in other words, he Adam asks, why, why do we have to repent and be baptized? And the Lord says, because you've been forgiven. Wait, I thought we got forgiven by getting baptized. <laughs> right? It's not that way. It's the other way around. You know, we repent and are baptized because we feel the love and forgiveness of God, not the other way around. You made a comparison uh, pre-show. You, you said you remembered this occurs in the Book of Mormon at the Waters of Mormon, too. You and Shiloh discussed this when you recorded on, on those chapters. Yeah. So if we go to, yeah, Mosiah 18, then uh, Alma is there with the people and they're listening to him and they're re- they've repented and they all desire this. And and Alma says, well, here's water. Let's Let's do this thing. Let's be baptized, right? As a result of repentance, as a result of forgiveness, as a sign. Right. As a sign of a new birth, right? Yeah, to to commemorate this experience that we have had. Yeah. Right. So uh, anyway, that, that stood out to me. A verse I thought it was interesting that uh, that was the answer. And I always lo- was looking for something more in the following verses as an answer to that question. So. so I want to point out again that this is a resurrection without a death. Mm. The de- there's a death. I mean, there's a death, right? But it's a, it's a spiritual death. Yeah. There's a rebirth. There's a resurrection, but it's spiritual. Yeah. We don't have to wait to die to be resurrected. We can live in, in a life of the world that's outside of God's way, or we can live in a, in a godly life, in a, a life, as John puts it, in Christos, right? In Christ. And to be alive in Christ and to live in Christ. And that's a resurrected life. Yeah. So we get over here, the, the Lord goes into... A long discussion about the the doctrine of baptism and the symbolism of it, and and why it's important, and and I think you know there's actually many doctrinal discussions that have been had on these verses, but for some reason, what stood out to me this time was verse sixty three. It says, "And behold, all things have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me, both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual, things which are in the heavens above, and things which are on the earth, and things which are in the earth." And things which are under the earth, both above and beneath, all things bear record of me. So this is that sort of that contemplative moment here. Again, this is Enoch telling the story of Adam, but you know, Enoch had just had the experience of seeing everything that God had created, and Moses had had the experience of seeing everything that God had created. And then here's this statement from from the Lord to Adam about how he's present and manifest in, in all things. Uh, so this is sort of that contemplative moment for him to consider the endlessness of God. He tells Moses, endless is my name. You know, my, my words never cease. My, my works never cease. What's the phrase? <laughs> I always forget it. Well, our, our words never cease. Ben. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is that. At some point, we turn off the mic and we just keep talking. <laughs> Three-hour podcast. You know, Ben, this reminds me, my <laughs> my kids came home, my my uh, teens came home from church Sunday with a talk from uh, Russell M. Nelson, uh, President Nelson, on, on the creation. And the talk read, and I just had an epiphany here. I mean, this just is happening right here, right now, listening to you talk about this verse, right? Because actually, and this goes out to all those who, who have read the, the argument, 
that Russell and Nelson gives, and that we're really seeing in this verse, and we see it throughout the Quran, that all creation, that creation testifies of a creator. If you take that the way I've been taking it up until now, as some kind of logical argument, it just doesn't work. And mm. you already know that. Mm. Because if you're doing that, you already know that that's circular reasoning and it makes no sense. But if you go out in nature, and this is, I've had the experience of, if I have an experience of nature, if I have an experience of God in nature, that's not a rational argument. That's not propositional. That's an experience. And I've had those experiences. And of course, what this verse is saying is true. Yeah. Of course, the creation testifies of the creator. But not by me just looking at it and scratching my, you know, uh, head and thinking propositions, but through an experience of God in God's nature. Yes. Of nature's God and God's nature, right? Yeah. <laughs> so then I like how he ends the chapter here. He says, I'll go with 67. And thou art after the order of him who was without beginning of days or end of years from all eternity to all eternity. Again, the, the return of this this idea that he tells Moses, right, that you're after my order. You have that divinity within you, right? You are my child. You're my offspring. Yeah, it's exactly right? as he told Moses. Yeah. Behold, thou art one in me, verse 68 says. What a statement. Thou art one in me, a son of God, and thus may all become my sons. Notice it doesn't say one with me. Hmm. It says one in me. Hmm. I think that's where I want to be. Can we just can we just end there? I mean, we did run out of verses. Sounds good. Unless you have something else to say. Let's let's be one in God. No, no, I, I want to be one in God. I just want to sit with that. Okay. Well, Ben, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for all of, all of your insights. Uh, it's been it's been really fun to talk about these chapters and and to see all the things that we could pull out of them. That it's been really inspiring, and especially this this last verse that you know that really spoke to me. Thou art one in me, a son of God. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much, Christopher. Appreciate everybody all the work that the editors do for this podcast. You know, we spend time talking about it. This is actually the fun part. The The editing is a little more time consuming. I don't know if time consuming is the right word, but more tedious maybe. So we sure appreciate all the work that, yeah. that Kyle and Tom and Shiloh do to, to help get these out. And we really appreciate any feedback or commentary that people have about this. You know, whenever I read through these chapters and then we discuss it, I always then on social media or talking with family or people, you know, other acquaintances, they're always like bringing up or posting links to stuff and always like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I wish we would have talked about that. <laughs> and it, it, it just it just constantly brings to my mind that there's just like there's so many layers of, of approaching this and, and ways of, of analyzing it that I. I sure um, appreciate any additional input and, and offering that people have to to insight that they gained as they they went through these readings. So, again, yeah, as as you mentioned pre-show, Ben, you and I have both studied and learned enough to know how little we know, yeah. and that we don't have the answer. We have answers. We have an answer. We have 
answers, but not the mm-hmm. answer. Well, then we'll end this one and uh, say until next time for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks, guys.